0: This week, how doctors die and how they're cared for at the end of life, and frozen fecal transplant for C. difficile infection. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm your host and a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm delighted to be joined by my old friend, Dr. Fahad Razak, who is an internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto.
1: Amol, great to be back and get called doctor by you.
0: Yeah, and old. Like and
1: old. Well, that's normal, but the doctor's new.
0: <laughs> All right. So, uh Fahad, it's been a while, I feel like. It's good to be back. Okay, so you want to talk about how uh, how doctors die, what brought you onto this pleasant topic. I'm a doctor who's aging.
1: Pure self-interest.
0: All right. So, uh so tell me what what you want to talk about today.
1: So, uh there was an issue of Jama recently that had a whole focus on palliative care, and there's two research letters which I thought were pretty interesting. The first looked at where physicians die, and the second looked at the intensity of care they receive at the end of life. So talking about the first study, it was by Blecker and colleagues. The major finding of the study were that was that physicians were less likely to die in a care facility compared to other health professionals or the general public.
0: Okay, uh, that's interesting. Why don't you tell me, obviously, apart from the obvious self-interest about uh, you know how, predicting how you and I are going to you know, end our lives. Uh, Coronary me, artery <laughs> disease. So yes, that that's already been predetermined. Certainty. So tell me, uh, what was it about uh, this study that caught your eye? What did we know about this topic before? I seem to remember like a popular media article about this floating around maybe about a year ago.
1: Yeah. So there's been a lot of coverage in newspapers looking at cases or examples of how physicians die. There has been some prominent examples over the last couple of years of relatively young physicians with cancer who decided to go for hospice care, palliative care, rather than more aggressive care. What's interesting about this, uh, pa- these two papers that I'm going to talk about today is that they looked at more representative population data. So prior to this study, there was some data that suggested that physicians die after receiving less intensive medical care and after receiving care that is more consistent with their end-of-life preferences than the general population.
0: Okay. So tell me what, uh, what, how is this study
1: conducted, the first one? These authors examined the National Longitudinal Mortality Study. Uh, this is a large representative sample of individuals in the United States based on the U.S. census. And they categorized individuals into four categories based on occupation or education. The first was physicians. The second category was all other health professionals. The third was other groups of people with high levels of education. And the fourth was the remaining general public. And the major outcome they examined is whether death occurred in a care facility. And by care facility, that included hospital, nursing home, or care facility staffed by trained nurses. Okay. And so what did they find? So the major finding is that compared to physicians, all other groups were more likely to die in a care facility. And for example, for the general public, they were 30% more likely to die in a care facility.
0: Wow, that seems like a pretty big difference. So the general public are 30% more likely to die in some kind of facility than physicians. Exactly,
1: yeah. And so, like I said, it's a research letter, so there's not a lot of other data, but Mm -hmm. it raises the intriguing possibility that physicians choose not to die in a healthcare facility, perhaps because they have greater knowledge of what is to be expected at end of life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a lot of alternate possible explanations. So do the authors comment at all on what might be
1: going on here? Uh, There's not a lot of other analysis, but I think the reason that they brought in these other comparator groups was to try and account for differences in things like level of education or profession. Uh, They also adjusted for all of the typical confounders you'd worry about, sex, race, educational status, income, et cetera. And so this is, you know, it's, it's, it is definitely retrospective. It's ad hoc analysis, but I think it does raise an interesting hypothesis. And uh, from a, from a believability of results point of view, I think they are definitely getting at an important phenomena, which is that end of life care is actually a lot more burdensome than the general public realizes. And physicians are probably in a position to be most aware of what really happens.
0: Yeah. So I guess I could think of a couple of possible explanations. So the, the theory you're advancing is that physicians have a better understanding of end of life care. And as a result of having greater understanding, they choose to die at home or in less intensive care settings.
1: Yeah. And, and actually our, the research letter I'm going to talk about next part two to this further supports that. Okay. So should we go to that and then talk about it more broadly?
0: Yeah, but then you're going to make me forget my brilliant and astute <laughs> points. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Okay. So first of all, do they die of different diseases? So do physicians for some reason have different
1: causes of death? Which yeah, good question. So they, they looked at that and the disease categories are similar. Okay. Age of death, similar. Perfect. Um, I guess the second
0: question then is, can physicians afford to die at home where other people can't?
1: Absolutely. Uh, an important question. This study can't answer that. So all they can capture here is what is reported through claims data. Right. And so whether there was private expenditure that would support, for example, a skilled nurse to help them die at home, we don't know.
0: Perfect. And then I guess the final sort of point about why this decision is made or why people end up dying differently, um, I wonder if it's that physicians are perhaps not just better able to understand uh, the implications of end-of-life care, but perhaps also better able to communicate their wishes and values to uh, their peers? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: It's a, it's an important possibility. Physicians can know to a degree much greater than the general public what each of these procedures means, what the options are, survival, complications, etc., cetera, and then really give an informed Decision to their care, and 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 then finally, yeah, or
0: or even also, and then just coming down to this question of values and preferences, you know, physicians are asked to face mortality every day, and I think as a result, perhaps have to spend some time coming to grips with their own wishes and their own mortality, uh, perhaps in a way that's more uh, carefully thought out than perhaps other people.
1: Yeah, I think that's an intriguing hypothesis. So, you know, one of the problems that many people have raised with end of life decision making is that in the middle of a critical illness event, you're suddenly thrown all of these big, important decisions. And maybe you would come to a different place if you had months or years to think about it. And you're right. Physicians, most physicians, as part of either their training or their day-to-day practice, have to help people make these decisions or see the consequences firsthand.
0: Okay. So why don't you tell me about, uh, about the second paper?
1: Okay, so the second paper covers a lot of actually the nitty gritty details we've just talked about. And instead of looking at where physicians died, they looked at five measures of the intensity of care physicians received at the end of life. Um, the five measures that they examined were whether a surgery occurred, whether the physician received hospice care, whether they had an ICU admission, whether death happened in hospital, some, so some overlap with that first paper. And then finally, the total expenditure on healthcare. And the major finding here was that, compared to the general public, physicians were less likely to die in hospital, so 28% versus 32%. They were less likely to have surgery, 25% versus 27%. They were less likely to be admitted to ICU, 25.8% versus 27.6%. So on these three measures of intensity of care, they were less likely to receive intensive care. Now, for the other measures, there was actually a trend towards greater use of hospice care not significant among physicians, and potentially, interestingly, less overall health expenditure in those final six months, probably because they had less of these intensive interventions.
0: So I'm struck, my first uh, conclusion is that the differences in this study seem to be less marked than in the first research paper?
1: No, not really. So the first research paper, I, what I gave you were relative numbers. And oh, that's, you're fooling me. You're <laughs> tricking me. That's right. So that, you know, I don't have the raw numbers to tell you, but the, the relative differences in the first papers. Here, I'm giving you absolute differences so that the absolute differences are not are not. Huge. It's 2%. We're talking about 2%, 3% differences between the two groups. Um, no, I would I was, I was going to say before I stuttered that the, the absolute differences actually are not small on a population level. So, for example, prevalence of dying in hospital, 28% versus 32%. That's a 4% difference at a population level. That's a pretty big difference, actually. Okay, so uh, sure, it's interesting. Um, and like you said, kind of
0: supportive or in line with the other study, their they're sort of paired study showing us again, that physicians have less intensive care at the end of life. And we kind of already pontificated on why that might be the case. And so to me, it seems like these are interesting hypothesis generating uh, uh, results. Um, so what's your takeaway from this body of work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it raises a lot of important questions. You know, first of all, one of the uh, common questions we receive from patients when difficult decisions have to be made is, what would you do if it was your own family member? What would you do for yourself? Um, I think this is actually supporting this recommendation of Sometimes we would do less for ourselves, actually, um, if we had to make these difficult decisions or when we have to make these difficult decisions as physicians who have seen many cases of things going wrong, of burdensome interventions that lead to a long period of poor quality life right at the very end of life. Um, and that's something I think this paper helps support that we can honestly tell patients that yes, in fact, we would probably not choose burdensome care in many circumstances. The second is that um, it raises the important question that you brought up of knowledge and when you get that knowledge. And again, I think if we're wondering if knowing about what end of life looks like and the kind of interventions that are available and the likelihood of success, if people people are educated about that well in advance of the time that they have to make a decision when they're healthy. Uh, when they're able to really uh, weigh risks and benefits, maybe they would make different decisions.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think it's really complicated. I think this whole thing about making decisions when you're healthy is challenging, right? Because obviously your frame of analysis is very different. Uh, and you think about things very differently at the end of life. So I'm not sure that that's the answer. I, I'm guessing there's probably no simple answer, but I think this is a real ripe opportunity for some really interesting qualitative work on trying to figure out why we're seeing what we're seeing and figuring out how we can use that to help patients uh, get care that's more consistent with their values at the end of life. Absolutely. Okay, so let's change gears uh, completely. <laughs> so our, our two topics today are like entirely unrelated. I want to talk about fecal transplant for C. difficile infections. Great.
1: So tell me about your study.
0: Yeah, so this was a double-blind randomized control trial that was published in JAMA, which showed that patients with recurrent C. difficile had similar outcomes when they were treated with frozen fecal transplant uh, as compared with fresh fecal transplant.
1: Okay. So it sounds like this is really now getting to the point of how can we extend the application of fecal transplant?
0: Yeah, that's right. So I think there's a pretty substantial body of evidence to suggest that fecal transplantation is an effective treatment for C. difficile uh, infections, especially recurrent C. difficile infections. So why don't I give you a little bit of the natural history of C. difficile? Because I think it's really interesting and useful for us as clinicians. Okay. Okay. How many patients with C. Diff. seal do you think have recurrent infection?
1: I'm going to say uh, 30 to 50%. Yeah, so the, actually
0: the, the evidence that I was reading and that's commented on in this paper is about 20% of patients have recurrent infection, so a little bit lower than... I, I've also heard it quoted as that high, and maybe, maybe it is in some populations. Okay. But of the people who have a recurrence... 60% of them repeat experience further episodes. Got it. So really high if you've had a recurrence That, And this is fascinating. Uh, molecular studies have demonstrated that of people who have recurrent infections, um, up to 50% have actually an infection with a new strain of C. difficile. So it's not necessarily a recurrence of the same bug over and over again. And so this has led to the theory that it's like disruption of the gut microflora that makes someone vulnerable to C. difficile and recurrent C. difficile infections.
1: Right. So the, the very basis for wondering about fecal transplants.
0: Exactly. So that's the rationale for why fecal transplants exist. Um, and there are a number of studies of fecal transplantation which suggest that it is effective on the range of being about 80 to 85% effective in, in treating recurrent C. difficile.
1: And in comparison to?
0: Yeah, rates of like 50% effectiveness okay. with antibiotics. So antibiotic dramatically therapy, better. Right? Absolutely. The challenge is that it's difficult to do, right? right? So it's hard to find donors because donors have to go through a, a significant screening process. It's hard to find a program that's set up to deliver this kind of uh, uh, intervention. And one of the limitations is that Previous studies were conducted with fresh fecal samples, which meant that basically the sample had to be provided within 24 hours of transplantation, which you can imagine poses a lot of logistical challenges. Right.
1: So this is almost like we've created
0: a blood bank, Right. And now we have a stool bank. Yeah, right. that's right. Exactly. So um, this was a randomized control trial trying to see whether we could actually create a, a blood bank. So this was a double-blinded study. Stool um, did I say blood bank again? You yeah. I meant stool bank. <clears throat> so, this was a double blinded uh, non inferiority trial at six centers in Canada run out of McMaster University. They enrolled patients who were over 18 years old who had recurrent C. difficile um, or refractory C. difficile. So, recurrent meant that you had repeat symptoms within eight weeks of having completed a full course of treatment, or refractory is that your symptoms were persistent or worsening even on vancomycin at a 500 milligram dose every six hours. So like a high and best antibiotic treatment, basically, um, for at least five days. Okay. So they randomized 219 patients and they were assigned either to fresh fecal transplant or frozen fecal transplant. The fecal material was delivered via enema which is, again, actually logistically simpler than some of the other studies which have used NG tube delivery mechanisms or colonoscopy-based delivery mechanisms. Right. Um, so this whole thing is geared towards sort of a logistically simpler process. All of the patients initially received antibiotics for their C. difficile recurrence, um, or or uh, I guess a resistant C. difficile, and the antibiotics were discontinued 24 to 48 hours before the fecal transplant.
1: Okay, so what did they find?
0: So first of all, they found that uh, everyone in the study received one fecal transplant. Patients who had no improvement by day four received a second transplant. And then if there was still no improvement, they were offered either a repeat transplant or antibiotics.
1: And this would be kind of conventional for what people are looking at now with fecal transplant? Yeah,
0: that's right. Their primary endpoint was uh, C. difficile recurrence at 13 weeks. and like success was no recurrence without the need for antibiotics okay at 13 weeks of follow up so like i said they enrolled 219 patients the average age was 73 years old about half of their patients were hospitalized patients and between 60 and 70% had moderate to severe c difficile so this was a sick patient population So what they found was that in their intention to treat population, so several patients were lost to follow up or required additional antibiotics. So they, um, but in that, in the intention to treat analysis, they found that uh, fecal transplant was about 75% effective with the frozen group and 70% effective with the fresh group. So basically there is no difference between the groups. Um, And then when they looked at people who were just on the protocol as designed, so who received one or two fecal transplants without extra antibiotics in between, uh, it was about 85% effective in both groups. Okay. And again, no real differences. There were no differences in adverse events between the two groups. The most common adverse events were diarrhea, I guess not surprisingly, abdominal cramps, nausea. Um, in the short term. And in the long term, actually about 20% of patients developed constipation and 25% developed excess flatulence.
1: Okay. I mean, very hard to distinguish these adverse events from C. diff itself. Yeah,
0: that's right. Right. Sure. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, I think the key point here is that it was consistent with previous studies in terms of effectiveness, right. maybe a little bit less effective overall, right. um, But and there were no differences between the groups.
1: So have they established essentially now a method for for wide-scale dissemination of fecal transplant to treat C. diff?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are still some logistical barriers. So you still need to have a a program that screens donors. Donors need to be screened for several things, things like, you know, occult infections, anything that could be transmissible, blood-borne infections, that kind of thing. They need to be screened for allergies um, because there's some concern about
1: that. So, so obviously you need a donor screening program. Right. And using the blood bank example, in other words, an infrastructure exactly. can develop exclusively for the process of harvesting, collecting, purifying, and preparing fecal transplants. Absolutely. It, right? Yeah. And so these
0: uh, transplant materials in this study were stored for up to 30 days frozen, which you can imagine like that really logistically enables you to have quite a large program right. and infrastructure that could treat a lot more patients with an enema, Right. A, a relatively simple procedure
1: any discussion in this about the cost or potentially additional cost of the preparation and freezing
0: no they don't talk about that okay uh,
1: you know the major limitation
0: of this study that they talk about is um, uh, sort of that it was only 13 weeks follow-up but their ongoing follow-up is underway and they're going to look at long-term outcomes right you know what I thought was really fascinating um so first of all just about the short follow-up is that this is actually longer follow-up than most of the other c diff Studies that have been done. So, you know, in line with the existing body of literature, this is still a very high quality study. Right. Um, but the thing that's fascinating about their extended, they're planning a 10 year follow up. They're not only inv- investigating the effects of this fecal transplant on C. difficile and its recurrence, but they're also looking at, you know, the the gut microbiome and how it might have effects on other aspects of the patient's life, including things like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, autoimmune disease.
1: Right. Yeah. There's this whole other fascinating literature about this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, so really excited to see sort of what comes out of this work. So at this point, in summary, any remaining barriers other than now all the practical feasibility stuff?
0: You know, obviously, given the limitation that I am not a gastroenterologist right. or C. expert, seal expert, uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think so it seems like it could be a, a really huge deal.
1: Right. So that's incredible.
0: Yeah. The one the one point I'll make is that actually we uh, saw a paper in 2014 in JAMA about an oral frozen capsule. It was only in 20 patients. It was a feasibility study out of Boston, single site, but they showed that- Oral frozen fecal material in capsules um, was effective in treating those 20 patients with recurrent C. difficile. So obviously, that would even take it to a whole other level of of feasibility and and ability to, to make this a more widespread treatment. But I think it's, you know, not long before we start seeing this a lot more in our clinical practice. Great. Okay. So thanks for the conversation about our science today, Fahad. Now Um, since you brought two research letters forward, I'm banning you from doing a good stuff segment.
1: You don't want to hear about the New York times. Okay. Okay. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Also, since that's all you ever talk about is the New York times and we all can read the health section of the New York times. Thank you very much. I am going to, uh, make a recommendation for my good stuff segment from a much more obscure source. The Globe and Mail, (laughs) so Canada's (laughs) national newspaper.
1: That's right. Heard of it.
0: Have you heard of it? Uh Okay, so the Globe and Mail on February 3rd published an article um, summarizing a report that has been released by Canada's chief public health officer, who is Dr. Gregory Taylor, and he released a report to Parliament about alcohol consumption in Canada. So the purpose of the report, he said, was to educate Canadians about alcohol-related health risks, basically saying that 80% of Canadians consume a substantial amount of alcohol um, and saying that the health risks of alcohol are underappreciated in our population. The ones that he highlighted uh, were that there are more than 4,000 ethanol-related deaths in Canada every year. 3,000 babies are born with fetal alcohol syndrome every year. And so right now there are 330,000 Canadians who are living with cognitive impairment from fetal alcohol syndrome, which is higher than I would have expected.
1: Yeah, that is higher.
0: And that the costs of alcohol related healthcare uh expenditures, policing and car accidents total 14.6 billion dollars in Canada every year, which is 4.1 billion dollars more than tax revenues from alcohol sales. Um, so, a sobering report. <laughs>
1: <laughs> good thing I am not doing good stuff. Can you go? Out, you can't go out. Any I want nothing than that. to do with this.
0: <laughs> all right. So uh, that's that's all I have for you today.
1: Uh, you know the the societal regulation around alcohol and alcohol consumption and the risks uh, related to it. It's interesting. So, in the New York Times this past week, uh, there was an article saying uh, that a new report has suggested that all reproductive age women. Who are, in, uh, who are sexually active and not using uh, a method of contraception should not drink alcohol. Well, and the, the idea being that there I, would be an exposure period and many pregnancies are unplanned. That's a fairly dramatic statement if sure, you think about but it. But
0: let's compare it to uh, the Zika virus, right? Like, How many people are being asked, pregnant women, not to travel to the Caribbean for a, very, a relatively much smaller risk of uh, developing congenital defects, uh, whereas, you know, if you think about fetal alcohol spectrum uh, disorder, um, you know, the, uh, the exposure is arguably much more, you know, possibly toxigenic and uh, or w- whatever the appropriate teratogenic. Uh,
1: yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting question. I mean, I would say that to my knowledge, and again, having not reviewed this literature, uh, the linkage between very uh, moderate levels of alcohol intake, for example, a glass of wine with dinner and fetal alcohol spectrum or other teratogenic effects is actually very, very poor literature. Um, and so a lot of the caution that we give in public health is because we we don't want to allow some level of drinking when a lot more is harmful, but obviously a very contentious issue. And other high-income countries, for example, Europe, uh, don't have nearly as draconian measures around alcohol consumption in pregnancy as we do in North America. And clearly the, that's not a society where Income or where IQ levels are lower or fetal alcohol syndrome is epidemic.
0: Well, that's the whole point of the Good Stuff segment is for you and I to pontificate about uh, things that we really don't know much about.
1: It's what I love to do.
0: <laughs> okay, so take that comment for what it's worth. Um, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Good to be back. Okay. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the Rounds Table. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Roundstable Podcast. Thanks for listening.